There is power in your journey. There is power in owning your journey. And there is power in remembering that there are a thousand different ways to get somewhere. There is not one way to get anywhere. And it's so important to remember that you are your superpower. Today's guest is Viz League mentor and professional marathon runner for Saucony, Laura Thweet. Laura has been on the top of distance running for the last decade, going from the track to world cross-country championships and finally to the roads and the marathon. She has most recently placed as the fourth American at the 2021 New York City Marathon. In this episode, Laura shares her journey with body image and underfueling in college and how she learned that there is power in owning your journey. She emphasizes that there are a thousand different ways to achieve our goals and that our unique journey is our superpower. Throughout her journey, Laura never really knew that she would make it to the next level of professional running, but because she believed in herself and in her love for the sport, she continued to chase her dreams. I love Laura's story because she reminds us that we don't need to copy other people in order to be successful. We are all different and we all take different paths to achieve our dreams. Laura, welcome to the Voice and Sport podcast. I'm really excited. Obviously, Voice and Sport has a very special place in my heart. So I was stoked to, to be able to do this podcast with you guys today. Well, you have really been at the top of distance running for many years, finishing sixth in the 2017 London Marathon and fifth in the USA Olympic Trial Marathon of 2020. And then this past November, you raced the New York Marathon where you came in as the fourth American and eighth overall globally with an incredible time of two hours and 27 minutes. So I cannot wait to understand how exactly you do that and do it over and over again and over so many years. And I know that our audience here at Viz is going to learn so much about hearing about your journey. So let's go way back to your early time in Colorado, growing up in such a beautiful space with a lot of outdoor trails and nature. How did you first get into sports and was running the first sport that you fell in love with or did you have others at the very beginning? Yeah, that's a great question. Running was not the first sport that I fell in love with. I tried, I think, every possible sport on my way to find running. So yeah, I grew up, you know, outdoorsy kid, a lot of hiking growing up, camping. I actually was really serious into equestrian horse riding. I did that for like six years, initially thought that was going to be my pathway to the Olympics. And then once I got into middle school and sports opened up through school, I went out for volleyball and that became my new love for the next two years while I was at uh, middle school. Made the C team in eighth grade and I made C blue in seventh grade because they didn't cut. But anyway, I thought I had what it took to be this world-class volleyball player. Went to high school as a freshman and I went out for the the volleyball team and did not make it because it is a cut sport in high school. And it was devastating because I really thought that that was kind of like where I was going to really find my fit. And a lot of my friends played volleyball and that was kind of my story growing up as a kid. I went out for sports that my friends did when it was a social component and just kind of having fun with it. So I did tennis camps. I did soccer very briefly. I played golf. I actually played quite a bit of golf growing up. My mom's a huge golfer. So again, I kind of dabbled in all these other things, got to high school, got cut, was devastated. And so two of my good friends at the time were big Nordic skiers and they were going out for cross country, which they were going to use to dry land train for their, their ski season. And they were like, great news, Laura. They don't cut and running. Anyone can participate. And so that was music to my ears because I was like, wow, all right. Like I know nothing about cross country. I had dabbled in track 
in middle school, but as everyone, when you first go out for track, you want to be a sprinter. So I was trying to run the 200 and the 400, which I just didn't have any business doing. So I didn't really understand distance running. So I went out for cross country kind of on a whim and we had a team time trial a week or two into practice and I won. And it was the first time in an athletic setting that I like actually was good at something and like actually was like, hang on, maybe I am more athletically gifted than I thought. I've just been doing the wrong sports that haven't necessarily showcased my natural talent. And so that's a summarized version. I love cross country so much. And to this day, it's my number one love in the sport because it's where I fell in love with running. And it's the first time I really started to develop confidence as a young girl in myself. And I never had really found that before. So that's how I started this whole thing. Well, that's so incredible. And I love that you were in high school. And how old were you exactly when you started? I think I was 14 when I found running. And yeah, I hadn't found it up until that point. Wow. It's incredible because when you're 14, we know that a lot of young girls drop out of sport at that age. And you named a lot of reasons why, but we don't talk about this often, but sometimes getting cut is a reason why you stop playing one sport. In that moment, it seems like your journey just stops there. And you're like, well, I guess I'm not cut out to be an athlete, you know? And so um, again, that's why running really saved me in that area. That's why I love coaching cross country now, because it it's for everyone. Everyone can come out and find their own rhythm with it. And it saved me from thinking that just sports weren't my thing. So yeah, that's a great point. Well, and you know, maybe you don't really find your sport until later in life. And I mean, we've talked to a lot of Olympians that didn't even find their sport until they got to college and then went on to go to the Olympics. So I do love this idea that every journey is different, right? There's not one way to get to your dreams. And it did sound though, like you were really interested in going to the Olympics at a young age. So can you tell us where that, you know, desire came from? Yeah. I mean, my family, I don't really have any major athletes in my family. My parents were active and I grew up active, but never in like a sport sense. But I grew up watching the Olympics, which I think as a young kid, everyone can kind of relate to what they're watching when we watch the Olympic games every four years. And so I think I've always been competitive. I think I've always had that natural drive to really find that limit and really push myself to try and you know, be the best that I can be and see if I can reach that top level, whether it was school or all these other things. I think I kept going out for all these sports, not only because my friends were doing it, but I was determined to find that fit for myself to really be able to get to that stage one day. I just thought, you know, watching these athletes growing up, they were just so incredible. And just the atmosphere that is the Olympics and to represent your country on this global stage in a sport or through your own passion. I just thought it was so cool. So every sport I kind of fell in, I was like, maybe I can make the Olympics in this one. I thank my parents for that. They've always encouraged me to dream big and to go after whatever it is that I'm really passionate and really love. And so, yeah, as a young kid, I think because I was active, sports kind of became that for me. And I just loved what sports do. They bring you together and like you get to compete and you kind of get to really see what you've got. But it's also this camaraderie thing, which I thought was really cool growing up. And that's how I met a lot of my friends over the years. And so I think that was a piece of it too. Well, let's talk about where you grew up because you grew up in a smaller city, 18,000 people in Durango, Colorado. And we've seen a lot of athletes from smaller towns really just have incredible success in sports. We just completed a podcast with Lydia Jacoby, gold medalist swimmer from my home state, Alaska, but from a very small town, Seward. And so I do love this idea that you can have a competitive advantage by being in a smaller city. You don't always have to be in the big major cities, make the best club teams to succeed. So 
Do you feel like that smaller community helped you succeed in your athletics? I do, because I think one of the benefits of growing up in a small community, everyone's really connected and we only have one high school. It was a pretty small high school. So the community really gets behind high school sports and high school activities. And so as I slowly developed my skill and got more and more competitive as I went, as I progressed through my high school career with running, the community really supported me and really kind of got behind me in my journey. And their belief in me, I think really helped continue to grow that belief in myself. And so even to this day, my hometown paper will like still write articles about like where I am and what I'm doing in the sport or what marathon I'm running or if I'm at the trials or whatever. And so I still feel that up here in Boulder. Durango is where it all started for me. And a lot of that, again, is just the community and the way the town really embraces all of their high school athletes and college athletes with Fort Lewis. And again, you just kind of have a little bit more of that connectivity with the people in your town as opposed to being in a gigantic city. You really feel like you're part of something and they're part of it with you. So they've been a huge part of my journey and getting here for sure. Well, that journey then went on to landing an incredible spot at the University of Colorado, where you then were a five-time All-Big 12 conference performer and an academic All-Big 12. So you really did an amazing job at the university level, but I want to kind of backtrack a little bit to your transition to university. Were you sought after? Were you number one recruit and got a bunch of scholarships? Like, What was that experience for you from, I guess, 14 to landing a spot at the University of Colorado? Yeah, it's really funny. I didn't realize you could really continue running. I never thought I'd be able to run in college. That didn't really become a reality until my junior year when my high school coach was like, listen, have you thought about continuing this into college? Like you're at a level where you can probably start to look into doing that. So that really opened my eyes to like, okay, like, wow, I didn't realize I was good enough to be able to run at the collegiate level. That was pretty cool to have someone say that to me. So once he planted that seed, I started going to all of these college running camps. I went to Western States between my junior or my sophomore and junior year. And then I went to the running camp at Oregon going into my senior year. And I wanted to be a duck. That was the school I wanted to go to. I was obsessed with Prefontaine, Tracktown, USA. My grandmother lives there. And so we spent a lot of summers there and Hayward Field. And so when I finally believed that I could run at the next level, I was like, Oregon, like that's where all the greats go. If I want to be great in running and I want to make the Olympics, I have to go to Oregon. So when I went to that camp going into my senior year, Vin Lanana was the head coach at the time. And he basically said, we recruit state champions. Like we recruit the best of the best, right? Like is essentially his message, or at least as a young high school kid, that's what I took from it. So I was like, okay, I have to win state. So I came in second at my high school state cross country meet by like five seconds, like three or five. It was so close. Like I almost won. So in my head, I was like, okay, I didn't win, but like I've clearly showed that I can be great. I have what it takes to be a champion. Never heard from them. They didn't respond to my emails. They didn't contact my coach, like so many unanswered calls. It was devastating because I was so sure I was going to go there and like that's where I was meant to be and that I had to go there. I bought a huge yellow O sticker and I had a yellow Super Beetle at the time. And so I put this huge yellow O sticker on the back of my car. And then when I realized that like Oregon probably wasn't going to happen as far as running was concerned, I was devastating. So again, that was one of the other forks in the road of this journey, so to speak, as I was convinced that I had to go to Oregon to be great or like I had to run division one to be great. And so, you know, I started looking around at like Adams State, Western State. I looked at Arizona State and then Mark Wetmore contacted me from CU and 
at the time, I don't think I really wanted to stay in Colorado, but I also was never expecting to hear from someone like Mark. And so I started digging into CU's history and I was like, oh my God, they're like better than Oregon. This is like one of the premier schools in the country as far as running goes. Mark Wetmore is this legendary guy and he's contacting me. And so I came up to Boulder for a visit, obviously fell in love with Mark and just the message he gave to me. And his whole message was almost the opposite of Vin Lanana's, which was, yeah, we obviously like performance is all part of how we recruit, but we look for kids that have underperformed in high school or have shown us that they have this huge growth rate. Like you haven't even started to tap the potential of what I see you capable of. And I want to develop that. I want to develop athletes to be the greatest that they can be. And he was like, you're that athlete. And so that sealed the deal. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to see you. It was huge because again, Kara Goucher, Adam Goucher, the Slatteries, the Culpeppers, like you have these legendary people coming out of CU. You're like, wow, Mark believes I could be that. And so again, it comes back to having other people nourish that belief in yourself. And Mark did that. And so I was like, that's the program that I'm going to go to and I'm going to continue my career. And that just sealed the deal for me as far as wanting to go to CU. And so I signed my letter of intent pretty shortly after that. And so again, it was a really exciting time just to have someone like Mark turn around and be like, hey, I believe in you and I see what you can do. And I was like, if he believes in me and he thinks I'm untapped and I'm just getting started, like, why would I run for anyone else? So it was a really cool moment. I love that. That's a big reason why we started the platform at Voice and Sport is because if you can just have one person believe in you or even that one connection point to seeing yourself in the future of your sport, it can have a huge impact on you. So I'm so glad that you found that and that he found you. What advice do you have to girls today that might not be getting that feedback and might be feeling discouraged about where they're at in their journey and maybe they're not getting coaches calling them and they still really want to play in college or they want to run. What advice do you have for those girls that might be going through that right now? And I tell my high school kids this too. I think it's hard because a lot of times you think that they have to contact you and if they're not contacting you, they don't care about you. But a lot of times coaches, they don't know everything. It doesn't mean that you're not good enough. And it doesn't mean that they don't want you. You just get lost in how many people they're trying to look at. So I always say like, reach out or have your high school coaches help you reach out to coaches. And it's okay to put yourself out there and get a coach's attention. And so I think that's a big thing is you don't have to sit back and wait. And then you don't hear anything and you think, oh, well, I'm not good enough, or I failed because I should be getting recruiting letters and I should be hearing from the coaches I want to run for. And if I'm not, then it's just because they don't think I'm good enough. And that's usually not the case at all. So putting yourself out there and reaching out to those programs is huge. And then another thing too, I think is tough at the high school level is a lot of high school kids think that they have to run division one if they want to go anywhere in the sport. That couldn't be further from the truth. Like there's so many great division one programs, but I know so many people that went D3, D2, and they became Olympians, you know? And so it's not about the size of the school or the recognition of the program. It's finding the right fit for yourself and realizing that you don't have to go one way to get anywhere. And as a high school kid, I wish someone would have told me that. I overlooked a lot of smaller schools. Obviously, CU was a great fit, but I thought I had to go Division One if I wanted to do anything with my running career past college. And that's not true at all. I mean, I was on a team with Boris Barron who went to Adams State, a small D2 school here in Colorado, in a really small town, Alamosa, Colorado, and he became an Olympian in the 800. So there's so many different ways. So don't get stuck on thinking, I have to go this track in college if I want to do anything. There's so many tracks to go. And then if 
you can realize that and open up your selection and what you're looking at, so many more options are going to come your way as opposed to thinking you have to fit one pathway and one coach or one school. I think it's such great advice. I mean, if you're only focused on like one thing and you're evaluating just one thing, when you're thinking about what college to go, you're missing just a lot of different components that are going to make you happy during your time there. It's one of the things that I wish I would have thought a little bit more dynamically about what, how and why I was choosing the school. But I was like narrow, narrow focus, kind of like you. Okay, where can I get a soccer scholarship? Division one, that's it. And then it was like nothing else mattered. And that's not the way to think about it. So I love those examples that you just shared. And it just goes back to what we're talking a lot about today, which your journey can come in so many different ways. And you're a great example of that too. I want to talk a little bit about like that time in college, because it can be really hard as an athlete, especially as a female athlete coming into collegiate sports where there's predominantly male coaches, you're in an environment that still has more money going to the male programs. And you come in, your body's changing, and you're away from your home. How did you specifically really deal with that transition to listen to your body and understand the signals they were sending you as you were developing as a collegiate runner? How did you take care of your body in that environment? As we know, there's unfortunately in the sport of running a lot of red S and a lot of young women not fueling their bodies correctly. What advice would you have to girls today? that are in college to really make sure they're caring for their body. Yeah, I won't lie. College was really hard and I actually almost quit the sport. It was tough. And Mark warned me about this, but you don't really know what that's going to be like until you're in the environment. I was the best on my high school team. I ran with the boys. I won almost every race that I did my junior and senior year. You're, you're the top of your school, right? You're the kind of the top of the sport as far as high school goes, wherever you are. And then you come into a big college program and guess what? You're on a team with Foot Locker champions, Nike champions, state champions. You're suddenly in the mix of all these people that are just as good as you, if not better than you. And you're all vying for a few varsity spots to make the traveling team and to get the opportunity to compete for a national title. Everyone's fighting for that. And I wanted to impress Mark. I thought I had to impress Mark. And so the way to do that was you impress him in like every hard workout or every long run. And so all of a sudden I have, I'm doing four or five hard days a week. I'm not recovering or I'm doing recovery runs so much faster than I ever did in high school. I'm doing workouts two, three times the intensity of what I ever did in high school. I'm doing volume two, three times the volume I ever did in high school. And it's a recipe for disaster when you don't have someone pulling you back or someone kind of navigating that with you. And so I got injured right away. I got a stress fracture my freshman year. I was running well enough to make the traveling team for the cross country season. I got a really bad stress fracture because I ran through it for like four weeks before I told anyone that I was having pain. Because once again, I was like, I can't disappoint Mark. I have to keep proving myself every day of the week. There's five or six girls behind me that are ready to take my spot. It's just such a competitive environment, not necessarily fueled by the coaches, but you're all trying to be the best that you can be. And you get it in your head that you just have to perform seven days a week in training, and then you have to perform in the races. And so I was like, I don't want to tell Mark that I'm hurt. And so I got a horrible stress fracture, missed nationals, took time off, came back, got another stress fracture, took time off, came back, got another stress fracture. So my first two years at CU, I was horribly injured for like 
70% of that. Like I would get through part of a season, have a breakout race, and then I would get injured. So I couldn't get consistency. And then just every time I'd come back, I would jump back in right away. I wasn't being honest about how I felt. I got it in my head sophomore year that it was a weight issue. So I cut back on eating and I was all about portion sizes and I thought less was better. And I thought if I could lose 10 pounds, I would stay healthier and I get back to where I was in high school and be really competitive and be as good as I thought I could be. And so, you know, it took me two years, one, to put the right support system in place to actually get people in my life that were like, you can't do it this way. This is a recipe for disaster. And again, that transition was just extremely difficult because of just all those different components. And so finally my junior year, I was like, this isn't working. I'm really unhappy. I hate running. And I'd never hated running before. And I hated it my sophomore year after my fourth injury. And so I sat down with Mark and I was like, I'm really frustrated. Something isn't working. And he was great. And he was like, all right, like, let's make a different plan for you. So we cut back on the ground volume. I added in the alter G and some pool. And we figured we could just kind of get me healthy by removing some of the intensity. I also finally learned that you can't compete in every workout you do. Your workouts cannot become your races. Your long runs cannot become your races. Like, yes, you want to train hard, but there is a balance and there's a very fine line. And I kept overstepping that thinking that I had to win workouts. I had to win long runs to prove to Mark that I was good enough to make his team. But then I was struggling in races because you can only come up and you can only dig that deep so many times. And if you're doing that every day in training, well, you just can't sustain that in racing. So I finally learned to stop comparing myself to my teammates. What they're doing and how they look doesn't have to be what I'm doing and doesn't have to be how I look. I can be a fantastic runner with what I'm given and I can do it in a slightly different way than they're doing it. But that took almost until my senior year to put that piece together. And I finished college my last two years healthy, had some consistency, but I never made nationals in track. I was never an All-American in cross country or track. And I fell short of a lot of the goals that I had set for myself as a high school kid going into college thinking I was going to win national cross and I was going to run these crazy track times and be All-American and go on to be an Olympian. And that couldn't have been farther from the truth. I came to college thinking that my running career was once again over because I thought you had to come out of college and if you didn't sign a big deal, weren't recruited by companies and things like that, that like there was no way you could be a professional athlete. So basically college was extremely difficult, but I'm so grateful for it because I learned a lot of those lessons in college that I continue to remember and I continue to grow on outside of college that eventually led me back into the sport. So I'm so grateful for everything at CU, but it was an incredibly difficult four years. <laughs> I'm just more curious to know, like there's a lot of similar issues that runner female athletes specifically. I feel like it's very common that they come in, they get stress fractures, they underfuel, they overtrain. And that's why we're working with so many incredible experts on red S research and, and really trying to understand and educate the girls in our community about their bodies and about fueling them properly. But just from your perspective, is there a cultural shift that needs to happen? Are there things that we need to think about doing differently to make sure that these young athletes in the college arena have a better chance of not going down that path? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, and I've talked about this with Maddie Alm, who is an expert um, and one of my teammates, but an incredible dietitian. We need to create language around this. There's no language around it. There really isn't. Like, 
No one is talking to high school athletes about this. No one is talking to college athletes about this. No one is educating college coaches on these issues or high school coaches. It's this weird thing that no one wants to talk about, but it's so important to the health of female athletes. No one's talking about red S. No one's talking about the importance of your menstrual cycle and having your period every single month. And if you stop having your period, oh, that's a huge problem. And how to train through the different cycles or phases of your period when you can really max out training, when you have to recover more, when you have to let your body calm down a little bit, when you have to eat more of something or you have to just eat more in general. Like I said, seriously, your period is your superpower. Knowing that as a female athlete and then having coaches and other people that have the resources to help you work through that can really maximize how you train and how you compete and then just how you stay healthy, which you have to stay healthy if you want to be able to have any type of success in the sport. So that's the biggest problem is no one's talking about it. Um, People are afraid to have these conversations. And so that's the first thing that has to change is how do we start having these conversations and create normal language around this and stop tiptoeing around it like it's this weird thing that no one wants to talk about. That's right. That's why we have sessions every month on periods and menstruation. We talk about it all the time. It's such a normal part of the female anatomy and over half the world has periods and we don't talk about it. And so then female athletes don't talk about it. And then they don't realize that missing periods is bad until it's too late. Mm -hmm. You know, you just need people to have a conversation about it that young athletes can listen to and hear and relate to, to really make a change, I think. And it starts with what people are doing on voice and sport, but it also is going to start with the coaches. Like coaches have to be able to talk about this. Yeah, I know. That's something that we're working on is we're educating the girls right now on these topics. All of our articles are written to help them and in language that is very inclusive, but also just direct, like let's normalize these conversations. But what we're finding is that the coaches need to be informed. It's just as important to inform them. So we've got to work on that. We're starting to take on club teams that we do the sessions with the girls and then we do the sessions with the coaches to educate them. Yeah, I think that's critical. And I know Maddie's been doing some of that with a lot of college teams. Like she'll have talks with the team, but then she's also talking to coaches separately if they're willing to do that. Because again, like that's truly where it starts and where the change continues to happen. Like it's not going to get enforced solely from the athletes. Like they need the support and the help of their coaches in order for that to stick. And so that's where I think you have to start like attacking it. Thank you for listening to the Voice and Sport podcast. My name is Zasha Bolhawk and I am the producer of this Voice and Sport podcast episode. I run track and cross country at the University of Houston. I love working with Voice and Sport in order to empower young girls and women in sports. And I would love it if you would join us in trying to make a change. Go follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Voice and Sport for more amazing content. You can also sign up for free and join our community of female athletes at voiceandsport.com for mentorship, sports content, and inspiration. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the rest of this episode. So when you think about all the, the amazing young women today out in those programs in collegiate athletics, what would you like to whisper to them today? Just about three tips. You're in it. I struggled my four years, but don't struggle like I did. What would you say to those girls today? Yeah, I think a big one is don't be afraid to communicate. There are a lot of great coaches out there who, at the end of the day, they just want you to be the best that you can be. They obviously want you to be healthy. And so I think being able to communicate your need, it's really hard to do. And it's so much easier said than done. But I waited way too long to finally do that. And then it took me a long time to realize that like reaching out to a sports psychologist, really good idea. 
really, really helped me. But there's this weird like stigma around like, well, I don't need that. I have to get that mental toughness and work through all these things on my own because like no one else is doing that. And it's like, I waited way too long to reach out for some help, especially with the eating stuff. Luckily at CU, I had a fantastic female trainer who stepped in and was like, you can't keep going this way. Like this isn't the answer. And I'm so grateful for her. And so again, I know those resources, they're hit or miss, which is one of the frustrating things when you look at the collegiate system, but there's voice and sport. Had this platform existed when I was in college, I think it would have really been a game changer because you do have access to dietitians. You do have access to female doctors and female sports psychologists, and you have this place of resources. And so when I was in college, there wasn't a lot of resources and I had to find my own people, but I learned that building that support system is huge. And then also that comparison game. Harder now with social media, but even in college, I thought I had to look a certain way and I thought I had to train a certain way to be good. And I wish someone would have stepped in and been like, absolutely not. You are your superpower. You are what makes you good. And there's so many different ways to do that. There's not one way just because Becky's doing it and she's, you know, running 1530 on the track doesn't mean that you have to do it that way. And so I think that's a my biggest piece of advice to even my high school kids is like, don't compare yourself to someone else and think that that's the only way to do it and then keep injuring yourself or stop eating because you're trying to be someone else. That's never going to get you anywhere. And it just took me a while before I actually had the right people in my life to sit me down and be like, you have to stop doing it this way. So that's kind of, again, it's who you surround yourself with, reaching out, using resources like voice and sport. If you feel comfortable with talking to your coach, communicating your needs, what you think is going to work, what isn't, and then just making sure you have that really tight support system around you, I think is huge. And that's kind of what got me through those four years. Such good advice. Amazing. I love what you stand for and what you've been talking about, just owning your own journey and knowing that there's so many different ways that you can get to where you want to go. What is your advice for owning your own journey and staying true to yourself and not chasing someone else's dream? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it goes back to kind of what I just touched on. I think a big piece of that is not comparing yourself. And it's so much easier said than done. And I still struggle with that. I still go on social media. I see how women I compete against are training and I question what I'm doing. And I suddenly think, well, I should be doing workouts like that, or I should be running long runs at that pace, or I should be running 130 miles a week. And so again, I have to remind myself, that's the beauty of sport. There are a thousand different ways to get anywhere and how someone else is doing that does not have to be how you do it. I came out of college thinking that I couldn't continue... I couldn't continue running at the professional level or competing at that top level because I didn't sign a big deal coming out of college. I was never all American. I didn't win anything in college. So I thought my journey was over because I was like, well, everyone else who's pro, I think just signs right out of college and like they're superstars in college. So I almost stopped competing and stopped running because I thought that that was the only way to do it. Luckily, again, I found people along the way that were like, that's not how you have to do it. Like the biggest thing is just being like loving what you do. And if you want to keep competing, keep competing. Like there's a hundred different ways to kind of stack it together. So I think that's the biggest thing about owning your journey is just remembering that your journey doesn't, and it really shouldn't look like anyone else's. And I think that's what makes sport so empowering is because you see all these athletes who have this success and love what they do, but they're doing it their own way. And I watched the track trials back in June this year, and I love how they highlight all these different athletes who have all these journeys. I'm blanking on his name, but there was a guy in the steeplechase. 
I believe he was fourth or fifth, so he almost made the team. He worked a night shift at Walmart because he didn't have a sponsorship to make the money he needed to compete and go to all these track races to get the standard and give himself the opportunity to make an Olympic team. There's just so many ways to do it as long as you love it and you're passionate about what you do. And so I love those stories because, again, it just highlights how people have followed their own journey and followed their own path. And it always ends up panning out and you can't be afraid to do that. And you just have to believe in yourself and then create a support system around you that also believes in you. And I think the people in your life and the influences in your life play a huge part in that. And so it's so important to make sure you have the right people surrounding you. Absolutely. And if you can't find it, come find us at Voice in Sport. Yes, and that is why I love (laughs) Voice in Sport because where else can you reach out to athletes and just all these people that are like the best at what they do and they want to help the next generation do exactly that. Like, it's just so incredible. I love it so much. Well, we're excited that we have you part of the community because it's women like you that are going to really help change things for the next girl. Just sharing your journey right now and your story is huge because I think that at each corner, it sounds like you weren't quite sure if you were going to go to the next level. And let's now talk about that transition out of out of college and into professional life. It sounds like you were thinking, well, hmm, maybe I'm not going to make it because you didn't come out with a, a big Nike or Adidas sponsor right away. But you maintained confidence and you kept going, but it wasn't without a lot of obstacles. And so after 2016, you had an amazing result at the U.S. cross-country championships, and then you got an injury, and that was a pretty chronic inflammation injury in the joints that you were dealing with that I want you to share and tell us what it was. But it sounds like it was super painful, and it really took quite a while to heal. And so you had to manage through that that injury while transitioning into pro with not all the confidence really there. How did you decide to actually keep going? And what was that tipping point where you were like, yeah, I got this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go pro and I'm going to give it all I got. Yeah, it wasn't even a decision like that. I kind of just transitioned and kept chipping away at local races and then a few national races. And then as you slowly start to find your confidence in yourself, you slowly fall in love with the sport again. That was when I was like, I think I can really do this. But I came out of college took three months completely off, was like, I'm done with running. I need a break, a little burned out, frustrated with the career that I'd had. And I was like, I guess I'm not as good as I thought I was. Started coaching a high school team here in Boulder and fell in love with the sport just because I was running with the girls. And again, that's how it started for me. So I had that moment where I remembered why I love to run and why I started this whole journey in the first place. And that it's not just about the result. It's not just about the performances or the successes. It's about just the purity and the love for why you do it. And so I remembered that. And in that, I remembered who I am as an athlete and what makes me me. And that's always how I ran in high school. And so I got back to that point. I got hooked up with a coach here in Boulder and I joined the Boulder Track Club, which was a fairly new club. One of my teammates from college had just joined and talked me into joining. And the coach was really great. He was just like, listen, like, you don't have to be an Olympian. You don't have to do this professionally. Why don't you just do it because you want to do it? And let's just get back into some training. Let's get some fitness. Let's just do some local races. And let's just see how you feel just starting there. 
So I started there and my first race back was a turkey trot cross country race in Longmont. There was like five people there. And so I won and I was like, oh my God, I won. Like I always say a win is a win. It does not matter where you win, who you win against, whatever. A win is a win. And it does great things for your confidence. So I won this little cross country race and I just loved competing. I was just like, I miss this. This is why I love it. So then I went to club cross a couple months later and that was my first big race since I had left college and I was sixth there. And so I made the the team to go over to Edinburgh, Scotland and do the Bupa uh, cross country challenge. So I made my first US team, not an Olympic team, but I was like, oh, I made a team. I get to wear the USA singlet. How cool is this? Doing what I love to do. This is what I knew I was capable of. And so it started really slow like that. And then I ran almost three years with no contract. I worked full-time at Runner's Roost, which is a running specialty store here in Colorado. I coached high school cross country and track and just kept racing, kept bringing my times down, got a little bit more competitive, a little bit more competitive. And then I finally won club cross in 2013. And I had a pretty big year in 2013 where I had consistency with my performances. And so I signed with Saucony in 2014. So again, almost three years since graduating from CU. And then yeah, just kept progressing from there. But Again, it goes back to there is no one way to do anything. Had you told me in 2011 when I came out of CU that I would sign a deal with a running company and be able to do this as a profession, I would have laughed at you and been like, no, because in order to do that, you have to win nationals. You have to be all American. You have to have a college career that I didn't have. And then three years later in 2014, I signed with Saucony and I was finally doing this full time as a professional. And it was so cool. I'll never forget that moment. And then 2015, I had a huge year. I won US Cross. I went to World Cross. I debuted in the marathon. And then 2016 was the Olympic year and the focus was the 10K. But that's when I started to have problems with my pelvic injury. And it would come, it would flare up here and there, but we were managing it and I was training through it, got through the track trials missed the team there. That was pretty devastating. So it took some time off. The injury seemed to have settled, came back, started my buildup for London and things just got worse and worse from there. And so I went to London. I somehow ran my marathon PR of 225 and I had run through this horrific injury for like a year and a half almost at that point. And it really hampered my marathon build. The last four weeks of my London block, I was on some pretty heavy anti-inflammatories. That was the only way that I could get through that. Had a great day in London, was on this high. I made the world team. I was super stoked. And then two weeks later, I got diagnosed with osteitis pubis, which is this horrific pelvic injury, like inflammation of the tendons and the joints, the most painful injury I've ever had in my life. And because it was so far gone at that point, I had to take six months off of running, not a step. And I didn't compete again for 11 months. So that's sport. You have these highest of highs. And then almost immediately after that, sometimes you have the lowest of lows. And that was such an incredibly hard period where not only did I think that my time in the sport at that level was over, but people were telling me that this injury has ended people's careers. So it was a lot to deal with after coming off of this high moment and this breakthrough in my career and then suddenly being like, you can't run and you may not run again. That was pretty tough. And it was definitely a dark time <laughs> for a while. Again, I got through that with so many incredible people. Like I always say, it takes a village. It truly does. I don't do what I do by myself. Everything I do in the sport is because I have an amazing support system and an amazing group of people helping me every step of the way. And so it took a village to get me through that injury and remind me that yes, this is a setback, 
but there are silver linings to everything and it's how you look at it that's ultimately going to get you through to the other side and they were absolutely right it was just changing how I looked at it and trying to look at it as like okay this is a great reset I'm basically rebuilding my body and I'm going to come off of this stronger than I've ever been because I actually have to address the issues that have always been there, but I just got away with it. Well, sometimes some of the bigger injuries can really come because athletes can sometimes have this mentality of working through the pain and pushing through an injury. And even if there's a race or a competition on the calendar. So I wanted to get your perspective since you've dealt with a couple injuries, some in college and then in your professional career, how do you know when you have to have that kind of grit your teeth and keep going mentality versus, wait a minute, I need to pull back and let my body heal? Because it can be really difficult, I think, to tell which direction to go in. So how do you manage that as an athlete? It's so true, especially in running and especially further into your career. I have aches and pains all the time. There's always kind of something that like, you're dealing with. That sounds bad. But yeah, it's hard to differentiate what's an ache from training really hard and needing just a day of recovery versus I have to actually stop. My practitioner actually was the one that explained this to me. He said, if anything hurts more than 24 hours, you have to stop. Nothing should sideline you for more than a day to two days. If anything is lingering more than a 48 hour period, it's your body's way of being like, you have to either take some time off, get in the pool, go see a pr practitioner, tell your coach. You have to alert people to what's going on at that point. And it's not something you should be running through if the pain doesn't subside a day to two days. So that's my barometer now. You're going to have some things come up just because you're training at such a hard level, but pain is very different. Like if it's, getting in the way if you're compensating when you're running or you get done with the run, but then you're achy all day and it's starting to interfere with daily life, you have to pull back. You have to take that seriously. And that is your body telling you you're about to overstep. You have to dial it back. I'm still horrible at doing that. I obviously did that in my New York. Ended up with a soleus strain three weeks out from New York because I pushed too hard and I had a tight calf for four days and I like just kept pushing thinking like, well, I'm marathon training and of course my calf is tight. And then I did this monster workout on a tight calf and then I popped it. So it is your body's way of telling you, you have to slow down, you have to stop. And it's much better to stop and take one to two days off versus pushing another week or two and then having to take four weeks off. So it's remembering in the moment, one day is so much better than 10 days or, you know, however long. Yeah, it's such good advice. You have to have a lot of perseverance as an athlete and especially as a marathoner. So let's talk a little bit about that persevering mentality because I think in the 2020 Olympic trials for the marathon, it was another amazing example of you showing some real grit and perseverance. You finished fifth missing out on the top three Olympic spots by only 16 seconds. But you gave it everything you had and you led for a huge part of the race. So how did this experience help you cultivate more perseverance and teach you how to handle setbacks? Yeah, the Olympic trials in 2020 was the first race since my injury in 2017 as far as the marathon went. I was like, I'm back. This is me. I hadn't been able to race that aggressively and put everything out there like that in a marathon since 2017. And so I crossed the finish line and it's like this heartbreaking moment because I could literally see the team the last three miles. I could just see Sally. I wasn't closing on her, but I, she wasn't gaining on me. I'm just looking at the team for like three miles. And then Des passed me with like 
600 to go. Like who kicks at the end of a marathon? <laughs> Apparently Tess Linden. But anyway, I'd been looking at the team and I knew I was close and I missed it. And in a marathon, 26 miles and I was 16 seconds from making that team. So it was this moment of heartbreak. But at the same time, it was this moment of triumph because I was like, I'm freaking back. Like I just went out there. I raced the deepest field in American women's marathoning history at an Olympic trials. I beat most of those women, some of which are some of the most accomplished women in the world. I ran from the front. I ran aggressive. I took risks. I believed a hundred percent that I was going to make that team. And to finally just be back in that place after struggling with injuries basically since 2017 was huge. It was a really empowering moment as much as it was a heartbreaking moment. So it was a really weird couple of days where I would be crying and I was heartbroken. And then I was like, wait, you're a badass. You almost did it. You're back on the marathoning scene. You're fine. And so it was really weird. But it was uh, a moment that I think really catapulted this second half for me as far as what I want to do in the next couple of years. To continue listening to this episode, please go to voiceandsport.com and sign up for free. Laura and I go on to talk about how she handled disappointment at the U.S. Olympic marathon trials when she missed the Olympic team by two spots, how she regained confidence in herself and her body. Laura also shares her best tips for persevering in their love for your sport. Head to minute number 44 to get started on voiceinsport.com. This week's episode was produced and edited by Viz creator Zosha Bullhawk, a track and cross-country runner from the University of Houston. We're so grateful that Laura shared her story with us today. We are excited to see all the incredible things she will achieve in sport and beyond. And we are grateful to have her as a Viz League mentor on our platform. You can follow Laura on Instagram at lwheat. Please subscribe to the Voice and Sport podcast. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And send this episode to a friend that you think might enjoy our conversation. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Voice and Sport. And if you are interested in joining our community, sign up for a free voiceandsupport.com account to get started. When you join Voice and Sport, you gain access to our exclusive content and podcasts, mentorship sessions from professional athletes like Laura, and access to the top sports psychologists and nutritionists. See you next week on the Voice and Sport podcast.